0: Texas and Australia have a lot in common, as overheard today on the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. I'm Pius Wong, here in Austin, Texas. My guest today is Mr. Chris Perkins, an elementary and primary school STEM teacher outside Adelaide, South Australia. Despite any differences in landmass or population, both Australia and Texas share similar goals in engineering education. Hear about solar cars, changing Australian national curriculum, and more next.
1: But basically, my story is uh, I only got into teaching well, about 12 years ago now, uh, so I've had a whole range of different life experiences. You know, I started off delivering milk bottles running around the streets. No kidding. <laughs> Back in the early 80s, and, uh, and then I went to trade school. Became a welder, and I've driven those big 50-ton cat trucks, and and more ships, and been an out-of-school-hours care director, and things like that. Wow. Been married, and uh, well, still married, um, and I have two adult children and a granddaughter. So my life has been quite, quite wonderful and diverse and rich with uh, varied experiences, and. It was only, as I said, twelve years ago that I got into teaching. And so I guess I bring a different headset to teaching from people who maybe have always been in the education system. Yeah. And so when the opportunity for STEM came up, you know, in my school at Keithcock Farm Primary School in South Australia, I thought this is this is right in my alley. I love this hands-on, the problem solving approach. Using the higher order critical thinking uh, skills that sometimes with IT in this day and age don't always occur. Mm-hmm. And I think that flips back to my trade school days. Mm. That's why I love STEM. Uh, but as it's sort of new in South Australia, I, I've been sort of doing my own research with podcasts, online uh, searches, to try to find out where we are in South Australia in comparison to, um, you know, other countries and, and even states around the world to see where I need to be going with, with my uh, teaching of STEM because I've got a good idea and I think I'm going in a, a positive direction but I want to make sure. And right. I think it's always right. good as an educator to ask yourself that question, you know, is what I'm doing the right thing at this stage? Yeah. And I guess that's why I use podcasts. Um, I listen to them to go, oh yeah, I'm sort of doing that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, okay, I can, well, you know how we do that as educators?
0: Yeah, try to incorporate everything and, and in your limited time, try to get the best of what, what you can do in the classroom. What are some of the other podcasts that you listen to for ideas?
1: Um, well, there's uh, STEM Every Day, and then there's uh, different educational um, podcasts, just just general education, not not necessarily STEM focused. And with STEM, you know, uh, incorporating science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that is a broad sweep right. of of skill development that we have to cover. Uh, and so, I try to upskill as much as I can. On 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 what everyone else is doing, um, and sometimes, like a like any educator, you think yes, I think I've got this. Sometimes I think, oh, I really need to pick my game up on that. Sure. And then other times you think actually, yeah, I'm pretty good on this side. So I I think I've got that part of uh, the STEM education handled. Uh, you know, like you think, oh, well, I've got technology handled really well. I I, I incorporate a range of different programs, uh, problem solving is what I really try to foco- focus on in, in the classroom. I give the kids a brief on something. An example uh, was the uh, the kids had to build, uh, the students had to build a bridge and it had to span 30 centimetres um, and it had to take as much weight as, as physically it could take.
0: That's a classic mm-hmm. one, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because I found a story uh, about the Brooklyn Bridge called the 21 elephants. Basically, what happened was I bought, I purchased 21 elephants, toy 20 elephants, and um, that was the first assessment criteria that it actually the bridge had to be able to uh, hold 21 yeah. elephants. And then from there, we went on to different um, weight amounts. So I just had Ziploc bags with sand in them, different, different weights, and, then the, and uh, we got to 1.75 kilos which is pretty good with just pop sticks and masking tape.
0: No, I, I would have loved to have done that in my school. I never did that when I was growing up. Did you do stuff like that when you were getting educated, I assume in Australia?
1: Yes, very much. I, it was actually more hands-on back in the 70s. Mm-hmm.
0: That's
1: how old I am I'm 54. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we, we were very hands-on. And as I said, I went to trade school, and I loved trade school. I just thought this is my niche, you know, cutting, welding, measuring, using all the skills necessary and just being able to build and create something yeah. for raw products. And so I guess I have that headset still that I think students need that opportunity to be able to uh, develop some life skills. Not only for now, of course, but we don't know what the future is in for our workforce. Um, and so if we can... Design those critical thinking skills within students now, then that will be second nature to them when they enter the workforce. Yeah. Whatever that may be, or whatever that may look like in you know, 10, 15 years' time.
0: You know, I'm curious about more of your background and how that makes you think about these things. That's, I think that's pretty spectacular that you're a welder. The few times that I tried welding, I wasn't very good at it. So I'm, I'm very impressed. But <laughs> well, the thing is yeah, that.
1: Well, it depends on what. Which, which, which welding technique you're, you're thinking of, whether it's, um, the arc welding or, or gas oxyacetylene welding?
0: I think I was doing arc welding. This is how little I, I knew about it. All I knew was that, gosh, what was happening? I don't even know why I had a welding machine. We were trying to set up a lab somewhere and I think we were trying to bond some metals to build like a test, but a lot of the stuff that I had done was very, uh, Trying to figure it out as you go along, which may not be the best way to do things. <laughs> Optimal
1: trial and error is 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 the ultimate human development, True. isn't it? I yeah, think we've done that from, from the moments of time.
0: For sure, as long as the error doesn't <laughs> result in setting the building on fire, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing you just said something really interesting. You said you've only been a teacher for 12 years, which to mm. a lot of people, especially in the US, that's a really long time mm. because I don't know if it's the same okay. in Australia, but there's like a, what is it, 50% attrition rate for new teachers here. Like mm. in in five years, new teachers will leave teaching. So to say that you've been teaching for 12 years is pretty good. And I know there's more experienced teachers as well, mm. but... Uh, you also said that STEM teaching was new uh, for you or new in Australia, relatively speaking. Yes. So how would STEM where you are in your school, how is that different from, say, the traditional education that that uh, used to be in your schools?
2: Uh,
1: well, if, if if I go back to the 1970s, there was a lot more hands-on activities um, within within the primary school, which is, of course, where I teach. So I teach from foundation, four and a half years old, up to about 12 years old. Mm -hmm. I can remember always doing hands-on activities, whether they were craft, whether they were uh, technology-based. But when my own children went through, the hands-on component seemed to change a little bit. And I think that was because of the introduction of of computers,
2: mm, okay,
1: and so I think you know there's only so much time within a, a lesson that you've got to then sort of just switch around. Uh, so I think we lost a lot of the hands-on um, activities, and it went to computing, which is fine. Technology is, is, is a wonderful device, and it certainly has improved our lives a lot. You know, in the 15 years that I've sort of become more attached to technology, the uh, digital technology. And I think that we lost then, uh, obviously with, with just time constraints, mm. the um, the opportunity for children to experiment and just experiment with various technologies, not just digital, to to you know learn and grow and I guess gain the skills that I guess I took for granted. The the amount of times that uh, in my sort of 12 to, I guess, 13 years, because I was an outside school, I was care director for a while.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I would take in power tools, for example. And I found that, one, a lot of um, children had not had experience, first-hand experience, with using power tools. Uh, two, there's obviously some safety aspects that need to be taken into account within an, any educational setting, or even home, but certainly educational setting as a teacher or mm-hmm. educator. And I think that those things have impacted upon the um, the use of um, hand tools, power tools within within schools. I think that's where a lot of it has changed with work health and safety, which is a good thing. And I think people are just now a lot more conscious of uh, you know a spinning disc, uh, whereas <laughs> back in my day it didn't seem to uh, have the same uh, level of priority at schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were able to do so much more. And I, I, I often look back and go, "How have I still got ten fingers?" Uh, you know, <laughs> because the things that we did, and some of the the practical jokes we would play at trade school on each other, <laughs> you could, you, you would not be allowed to do in this day and age. Right.
0: But the, so you were, but in trade school, the, you were older than your students are now in your oh, yeah. primary school. Okay, do you introduce power tools and things like that for your students?
1: Not currently, no, mm-hmm. um, because just it's just time. Um, yeah. If if there was a an actual real life uh, requirement within my lessons for power tools, then I would introduce it. I haven't got down that pathway yet because I've been teaching STEM since 2017 and that's when it got introduced into um, my school. Now, other schools had started only a couple of years before that, so we're pretty close to being right Mm -hmm. on the money, if you like, and I just haven't got around to that sort of um, higher skill development.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's lots of other things that – you have to prioritize. I know that here mm-hmm. we the teachers always talk about how state standards and national standards can sometimes be overwhelming. I don't know mm-hmm. if uh, that's the same in Australia or do you, is it required to have certain technology standards in primary school where you are?
1: Uh, yeah, look, we, we, we use the Australian curriculum. Mm-hmm. That's been in for, well, nearly sort of 10 years. New South Wales in Australia has been our our leader in, in education here in uh, Australia. And they've really been the ones to have pushed for the Australian curriculum. Uh, they were the first ones that pushed our year sevens into high school. South Australia will push our year sevens into high school in uh, 22. Hmm. So we're, we're the last state to do that. And so the, the curriculum is quite diverse, because we've not only got technologies, we've got digital technologies. I teach STEM as a, a non-instructional time subject, so a niche subject, where teachers get a lesson off to do other things. And so I get one 50 minute lesson per week with, the, with each class. I teach from reception or foundation up to year seven. So I've got a broad, Range of abilities to uh, cater for quite mm-hmm. often within the same day, and that's that's what's tricky. And I would love to add a lot more complexity via uh, different technologies and power tools. But
2: yeah.
1: just setting up a lesson when I go from foundation four and a half year, five year olds, up to twelve year olds can <laughs> be a bit tricky logistically.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and you have a lot of <laughs> students in your school. How? Like, maybe tell me more about your students? Is it a huge school? Is it a urban area?
1: Yes, it's it's, it's just north of Adelaide. It's, okay. it's very much suburbia. I think you would refer to sure. it as in America. It would be uh, more middle class. We are considered quite a, a good school from that point of view. Uh, we t- Attendance is very good. Behavior is very good. And it is, in fact, one of the a really lovely school in, in quite a picturesque part of North Adelaide. Mm. So that's been good. And we've got about 440 students. Okay. In so I don't know if that's big for your, for well, your school. Well,
0: I think for Texas it's probably a little small, but Texas has everything huge. But that that seems like you have a good but, but, chance to get to know your students.
1: Mm, mm. It is. Well, doesn't Texas have a larger population than Australia?
0: Uh, you <laughs> know, got, I'm not sure. you I... got to think
1: about yeah, I think you've got about 28 million. In that sounds business, about right. We've yes. only got about yeah. 25
0: million in uh, in Australia. all <laughs> of Australia, well, wow. but you you can beat us in landmass, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, when you started talking about computing too, I know that that's a point of of pride and contention. I think over here, mm-hmm. where I mean, people are very into computers and software and computing and all of that because it seems like that's where what the economy is going to require, um, yeah. but I think what you said earlier kind of rings true—that you lose some of that hands-on experience. And I don't know if you consider computing uh, learn—if if you consider computer projects hands-on learning, I think a lot of teachers wouldn't. How do you mm. feel about things like screen time for young students? Is that beneficial?
1: I think, like any piece of technology, it has a place. And I think that we just need to find a balance. And I think that's where everyone struggles. You know, mm-hmm. where is the balance for screen time? I, I don't think anyone would live their lives now without some form of digital technology having a major impact upon them. I think it is important for students to learn those skills, to learn how to uh, do internet searches correctly, to research, mm-hmm. to present, to self-educate like I have done, you know, we're using um, digital technology. I think that that's critical in this day and age. I think there just needs to be a balance. And I think every culture around the world will find that balance different. And I think that's the tricky thing, to find what works within your environment. And I think it changes from uh, the junior primary levels. So from you know three and a half up to about eight-year-olds you know, we need to have maybe less digital technology and more hands-on. We do a lot more now play-based learning in junior primary. Hmm. And then in the middle to upper years of primary school, as we would call it, I think you call it elementary school over there. Yeah, then by all means, uh, digital technology should be used more and more and relied upon more and more. And I think because that ultimately will be uh, the student's future. uh, I think that's... You know, ultimately what education should be about, skilling our, uh, our young people so they will not only survive in the future but thrive and in yeah. fact create which uh, their future with digital technologies when you have a look at all of the different commercial enterprises out there that uh, use and are digitally based, they, yeah. they don't exist if you like in the real world as as much. Uh, they've got more of a digital um, footprint rather than they've got a sort of a, a, a physical footprint. And, and I think that's, that's the, the wonder of digital technology. Um, but with that, then, of course, if you have access to the world, then you have access to the world, both in the positive and sometimes the negative aspects of,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of
1: the world. So I think that's where a balance is always going to be
0: how How do you find that balance? So you have a lot more experience with younger students. I work with older students, so I don't even know. I just take for granted that when people come to me that they already have some kind of digital literacy, for example, how to use a computer, how to find sources, uh, even coding like there's there's assumptions about basic knowledge of the of computer code. How do you know what that right level of uh, digital instruction is to give students of different ages?
1: Um, What I do as a teacher is I always plan a year ahead, if you like, Uh, so Hmm. I can see what my little foundation students are this year and I'll start planning their work for year one. So I have a look at what they're doing now and then I start designing some learning opportunities. And as I go through this year, I then modify the planning for next year. I go, oh, I was thinking we could do B-bots in reception and I was thinking that we could do coordinates, uh, you know, X, Y axis, create maps. And then as we go through, I might go, oh, now that might be a little high for the year ones, but that might be perfectly targeted for the year two skill development. And so then I'll modify it. And so really, at the end of this year, I should have, and I have most of, next year already sort of the skeleton planned out and then as any good teacher you begin a lesson and then you you modify it and adapt it to what's happening in in the real moment but so i use i guess my my prior knowledge with the students where they're at to for any future planning i like the b-bots for junior primary i find they're they're simplistic they're easy they're durable
0: i don't actually um, know about the B-Bots, what are they? Oh, are the, the B-Bots?
1: Oh, yeah. okay. So so the B-Bots are, are a little um, character that is uh, designed to look like a bee. There you go, its name. Oh, you can get both okay. yellow and blue now. And basically they are used for basic coding. Okay. So they have uh, four directional arrows, forward, backwards, left, and right. They have a, a an activator, a go button. They've got a stop and a pause buttons. And that's, I find, as digital as a really lovely piece of digital technology, that is a wonderful introduction because, one, it looks really cute. And so for junior primary, that's that's a really good hook to get the kids in. It is simple to use. And as I said, they're durable should they get dropped. Because sure. with junior primary, they will be dropped. Um, <laughs> and so, well, fine motor schools are still developing. Um, and I find that it is just one of the easiest ways for students to get into basic programming, coding, And because it is so simple with just simply the four directional buttons and then the activate button, the go button, they can do it quite easily. And to be honest, once I've shown the students once, they're usually off and okay. running really easy with them. And then I basically increase the complexity of, of the lessons, of the learning that I want them to do. Mm-hmm. And I usually set like a little, uh, like a racetrack up, and they've got a program around a whole variety nice. of mm.
0: It sounds like you have an opportunity for competitions if you wanted to and mm-hmm. lots of things. <laughs> you know, I've, I just Googled the BeBot right now, and yes, I can oh. attest to the fact that it looks very cute. It looks comparable to like the OzoBots that I've seen my nephews and other teachers use and stuff okay. like that.
1: Yep. mm mm-hmm. And and it is that cute factor for junior primary. It's very important that the kids go, oh, look at that, and you know, mm-hmm.
2: that's
1: the little face on it is very cute. Simple to use. It's it's absolutely really quite simple. And as I said, they're very durable. Um, you know, they, the the BeeBots get dropped on a regular basis,
2: yeah. and
1: they seem to just keep coming back. Um, <laughs> I mean, we do we we do lose a few. I, I think in the last uh, three years that I've used the BeeBots, I've lost five b-bots so that's not bad when i'm using them for a
0: couple hundred students per year yeah mm. wow no that's pretty good mm. you know it's it sounds really helpful it sounds like you're saying look at where your students are and know where you want them to go and you're trying mm-hmm. to fill that gap you know you, you're reminding me of something else that I, I am wondering besides advice for teachers you're making me think of what advice might you have for those technologists out there creating things like the b-bot or other software that's supposed to be for students and teachers. What makes a good piece of educational technology good? Because it sounds like you like the bot. I don't know ooh, if there's ooh. other tools or, or things out there for today beyond power tools or whatever, or maybe including power tools. What pieces of technology are really great? What should we know about? And um, I don't know if you want to bash any technology, but what <laughs> isn't so great and why Why is it good and why is it bad?
1: Uh, well, look, I'm a big fan of Lego, um, and I love okay. the EV3 Mindstorm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lego, the intelligent bricks, um, and, and we've made the robots um, or one of the many robots that you can make with the Lego uh, Mindstorms. And the, the beautiful thing about the Lego Mindstorms is that it is, the usage is, is so broad. You, know, you can use it to make a very simplistic device. And then you can make it so it's quite complex robot that will undertake a a variety of complex functions using different sensors and switches. And so it's, for my year levels, it's almost um, unlimited. So I must say, we do use uh, the LEGO Mindstorms uh, kits a lot. And Mm -hmm. they are just wonderful. And again, they add LEGO uh, a level of complexity because, and you can adjust that level of complexity quite quite easily. For example, if you probe, did you know the Lego Mindstorms yeah. at all? Yeah, yeah. we right. used to yeah. use the, the,
0: the old mm. ones. We, I barely used the the newer EV3s, but I, I when I okay. did try it, I really liked the upgrade compared to the old stuff. The software and the hardware yeah. both were, were much easier to use, I thought. Kind of expensive, but yes. I think that's because it's Lego.
1: Educational. Yeah. Edu- <laughs> edu- edu- right, edu- right. Educational. The price tag yeah. If you want to make it reasonably uh, simplistic, then you can use the um, iPads to mm-hmm. uh, do the software programming. Mm-hmm. If you want to increase the uh, complexity, then you can use the programming on the brick itself because that's almost like the old DOS, DOS computer programming. Um, you've got to go up through the various fields. And and i really found that for complexity, the on-brick programming is, is a way of um, upskilling very, very quickly. Whereas uh, if you have a group of students that are struggling with the programming part, then using the iPad is so much simpler because everything is visual. Everything is right there in front of you and you can just click and drag. And, and so that makes it a lot easier. Uh, and we've been using those uh, in the last couple of years, and I'll continue to use them because I think that the the learning from uh, the Lego Mindstorms are just wonderful. Mm. Um, we made a robotic arm this year, for example, uh, using the Lego Mindstorm kits, and they had to pick up various objects from one point and put it across onto uh, a little platform. Wow. Yeah. Without, without touching the platform. And we got down to um, – we started off with the um, – like a larger plastic red ball, and the students had to design the claw, and then we moved right down to uh, the little rubber tyres that Lego use, and so the students had to redesign the claws, reset up the experiments, do their observations, see what worked, what didn't work, why didn't it work, and then make their adjustments to either redesigning the claws to pick it up, and then sort of... Look at the programming part to, you know, pick it up from point A correctly and put it down correctly. And I, the brief I gave them is they couldn't drop it because Mm -hmm. I said it's almost, you've got to pretend that you're picking up a piece of glass.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And then I used the example that, you know, on on a robotic production line, you know, you want the car door to be placed exactly in the correct (laughs) position. You don't want the robot to be putting the door on the roof because that's not going to help anybody. And so that's important. And so the students were using uh, the Lego Mindstorms. They had a great time with them. Um, uh, I can even send you some vision, if you like, um,
0: sure. of
1: the, um, the robotic arm and what some of the students did. It's, it's really lovely. And so I like that. So For me, as, a, you know, as, as we've only just started, I think BeBots, the Lego Mindstorms, iPads, uh, really have been sort of the, the mainstays of what I use. Yeah. Next year, our school's hoping to get into 3D printing, so we've done some training this year, and we're hoping to get some printers next year. So that will be a new a new sort of pathway to take, because I think that is also going to be one of the future industries, 3D printing. I love 3D printing. I don't know a lot about it. I've only just done some training. Yeah, but it's very exciting.
0: I'm sure you'll like it. Like I, I remember doing it for different things, including for for engineering stuff, and it's always pretty entertaining. I think it takes a long time to build stuff, but hopefully the mm. technology will get better, and and you can uh, do that. Mm.
1: But but that's more the sort of the uh, the quality, isn't it? With with the printing, you sort of like anything. You've got to sacrifice time if you want a higher quality product. Mm-hmm. If you want to. Uh, not such a high quality product, then you can do you can increase
0: the speed and things like that. Is there any like special view that South Australia or Australia in general has towards STEM these days or engineering education?
1: And I think Australia always has been um, a country of you know find solutions to. Uh, we, we seem to have found a lot of solutions to, to different problems. South Australia, for example, we invented uh, the Rotary Hills Hoist. Hmm. Uh, Hills was a, a guy that um, designed a clothesline, um, which, to be honest, was in most back gardens of, of, of Australians. Um, I don't know if you know it, but it's basically a, a clothesline that's of that's a, a square construction with wires running around. the four main arms. It could be raised and lowered either via gears, so a gearing mechanism and a handle, and you just wound it. Um, but there were hydraulic models, like a mm-hmm. like a car jack,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so it was quite fascinating. So if you Google uh, hill's horse rotary horse, you'll you'll find some uh, information on that. We're still sort of young here; we're only sort of a couple hundred years old, so we we're still problem solving a lot of issues. We're yeah. still, you know, finding. Uh, a lot of very unique solutions. You know, I think the lawnmower is a good one.
0: Wait, uh, is that, is that Australian? I had no idea. Is that an Australian invention? or?
1: I think it is, yes. I've seen some of the early ones, and they're, they're, they're reasonably simple. And then, of course, they've become a bit flashier, and now, you, of course, you can get electric ones. You see, that's the beautiful yeah. thing about the technology. And by problem solving, we've gone from the old petrol, although they, they are still the most common over here, um to the electric ones and the electric ones seem to work really really well I'm, I'm very impressed with the bat well it's actually the battery power isn't it we're increasing the efficiency of battery power right. um, with lithium ion uh, and that's of course what's helping even solar cars uh or electric cars and things like that so that's that's all happening which is very exciting we've just had the solar car challenge down here i don't know if you know oh, of that
0: no <laughs> I, I guess you have a lot of space for that kind of a challenge
1: we do. They they actually they drive from Darwin, which is of course a northern point of Australia, down to Adelaide, one of the southern points, and where I live. And it's uh, we get competitors from around the world.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Around can around I? Here. Is there a way that like people can monitor that? I'm curious. I haven't I've ever seen it, but I'm wondering if it's on YouTube or something.
1: Uh, I I do believe they do. Uh, the each each team has its own sort of website. If, if you Google or, or internet search. Solar car challenge Australia. Um, you will see they, you know, people sit inside them and they drive them from <laughs> from, from Darwin down to Adelaide.
2: Wow!
1: I've driven from Alice Springs, which is in the centre of Adelaide, to, uh, Australia, to to Adelaide, and and that's uh, that's about sixteen hours. Wow. <laughs> um, so to go from Darwin, I've never actually driven all the way up to Darwin, so it's, it's quite a way in, in some very hot climate. Right. I mean.
0: There's nothing in between, right? Um, I-
1: yeah, look, look, there are small communities along the road. Uh, sort of our petrol stations uh, are sort of the main towns, or the town is built really around that petrol station. I, I actually taught for a little while in the Aboriginal lands, um,
2: mm.
1: and uh, and that was a fascinating fascinating and wonderful experience um, and that was one one very steep learning curve um, and you're right there's not a lot out there but what I found as driving out there is that the landscape does change you think oh it's you know going to be sort of desert all the way but actually the different flora and fauna changes depending on how dry or or otherwise the uh, the environment is and and so I think if if we teach students to observe, we pick up those changes, and that's what mm-hmm. I found. Because I was expecting more desert, or, or as we would consider what is deemed to be a desert.
2: Yeah. And I
1: think you'd probably find the same in, in Texas. You might go to parts of Texas which have a higher rainfall, or oh yeah, parts that might have a less rainfall, and so your flora and fauna change, don't they?
0: Yep, definitely that same north to south variation. Yeah where it can snow all the way up uh, north, close to Oklahoma, and then you okay. go down to the border with Mexico, and it's a d- very different environment. In fact, you're, you're just reminding me how much I think even Texas is driven towards engineering by certain things, by by mm-hmm. its climate kind of driving solar energy research here, or um, mm-hmm. oil, you know, oil is a huge industry yeah. here. Cool. And then, like, here in Austin, Texas, there's just a whole bunch of tech companies here, for whatever reason, I guess. Uh, okay. Programmers just like to accumulate around this area. But I don't know. I'm wondering. I mean, I know Australia is big on energy and renewable energy, too. I'm mm-hmm. curious if that if you feel like that's, like, a, a hot topic in education circles or in mm-hmm. engineering circles over there.
1: I think it is. Uh, renewable energy over here uh, certainly would solar power, but also wind generation yeah um, is, is becoming I think one of the, the largest or well maybe not the largest but maybe the quickest growth industry
0: sure
1: apparently where uh, we use a lot of um, corrugated iron for our roofing over here
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they've uh, one of the unis here I believe have designed a way of making that uh, iron sheet and impregnating the uh, photoelectric electric, uh, components in there, oh, wow. so as you put up a sheet of iron, it is in fact a solar panel. So instead of tacking on a solar panel as a separate entity, it will now you'll just put on a roofing sheet, which will generate electricity.
0: I need that um, in my house.
1: Yeah, uh, look, it would be wonderful. I mean, that's that's just great technology, and we we do seem to be driving a lot of that over here. But then we've got a lot of sun over here. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> you know we've got this beautiful <laughs> natural resource. We might as well use it. I think there's also a real movement of people wanting to to leave a, a smaller carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. That's also driving it. Industry's getting behind it, of course, which is always so important to make sure that we've got those educational links to industry. And so industry's driving it through and with the universities over here, which is a wonderful uh, collaboration. And then of course we have our wind turbines because we have massive corridors of wind which can just be harnessed. We've also got the coastline, of course, where you tend to get more winds. So we've got that sort of natural resources that we can use. I'm a bit, um, I guess, curious about why we don't use more wave energy, whether there's something in that technology that you might know of, um,
0: A little bit. I know, well, I've heard that the technology is just not there yet. They're trying to f- harness uh-huh. that energy. I know, I know mm-hmm. that in Texas they're trying to look at that as well. Okay. But for whatever reason, I guess it's not as efficient. So that's something mm. that if anyone can send me tips, maybe they can educate yeah. me on the topic. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. do you find that that enthusiasm trickles down or, or is just as strong in primary school or, or in, in education, not just in industry and in universities? Um,
1: definitely. The enthusiasm is there and the interest is there. I think, like any uh, mm. educational resource, it sort of comes and goes. You know, okay. you get this sort of burst of enthusiasm and then everyone's buying the solar kits uh, and then after a couple of years, it sort of wanes a little bit and, and something new sort of backfills that spot. Um, and I must say my 12 years, and, and your comment earlier about 12 years <laughs> is actually quite a long time. Yeah, I, I guess from that point of view, I guess because I feel old, I think 12 <laughs> years is still such a small small component of my life, but yeah, I think with with education, you tend to get uh, things in 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 more cycles. So there's a boost in you know renewable energy at the moment. So I guess schools and education try to reflect what happens in society. Yeah. So we we go down that line, and then maybe you know in a couple of years' time, wave energy, water energy will be, or hydro energy in general will be the new thing. And so maybe there'll be hydro kits that will we'll work on with the kids. And so I think that's that's the one thing I find with education everything seems to be cyclic. I don't know about yourself. Uh, have you found that in the in the in the older years?
0: I think so. I think but see I haven't I've only been in actual education actually teaching people since like 2010. And so that's mm-hmm. not that's not a very long time as well and I've been doing engineering during that whole time. So I haven't been doing it all the way. But I do think that there're There is a push for more hands-on learning, Mm. I think. Mm. And I think that was definitely the trend in the past, and it's finally coming back. But in a lot of ways, I don't know what's going ahead. I feel like I haven't been in it long enough to see education as a very slow cycle, I guess. Mm. Like, what do you see as an upcoming hot topic in education or in STEM education? Like, I know computing is it right now, for example, Mm. Mm -hmm. and maybe even renewable energy Uh, That kind of stuff. But what do you foresee being more interesting to people?
1: I think, well, we're still STEM over here. So we're still science, technology, engineering, and math. I think the arts will come into that. We'll make it STEAM. I don't know if STEAM is is big in America. Um,
0: Kind of. Yeah, it depends on where you go.
1: And I think that they will be adding that creativity part. And I think that will change the landscape somewhat. Every child will bring their own unique perspective on it, and so I've already got students who are quite creative in what they do. Uh, I've got students who uh, just like to do the very basics, if you like, the nuts and bolts of whatever the task may be. Hmm. I think driving creativity within STEM learning will be the next thing uh, or the next part of the cycle that we will look at over here in Australia, and... I think that is important because at the end of the day, we want our students to be able to create, not just uh, reproduce or replicate what they know now, but actually think to a point where they can say, here's a new concept, let's do this. And actually then divide, you know, really drive innovation for the future. I think that will be our big thing. Now, whether I'm right or wrong, I'm not sure, but I'm happy to have a go.
0: You're, you're making – I think you're right because like you're reminding me of all the people who say like, yeah, we have to be more creative, that we're going to build robots that can do all the repetitive things. And so we have to find something else to to keep us going. And you're also making me think that actually one of the things I think will be a trend even more so than it is now is just teaching our engineers and our scientists to really critically evaluate – I guess, scientific sources of information, mm-hmm. just because yeah. with that whole trend of what is so-called fake news today, I think mm-hmm. I think that extends, of course, to newspapers and journalism. But I'm seeing that critique increasingly to things in the sciences, like should we trust this research paper that was just published or do yeah. we – do we trust you know this scientific organization if if they're getting funded by some other group mm. i don't know i'm just seeing a lot more questioning of even scientific mm. sources i don't know if it's being questioned really well but i feel like the trend will be to hold engineers and scientists to like this higher standard of um defending the their credibility i guess i don't know i don't mm. know
1: I think you're right there. I, I think it's very important that we use reliable and credible sources that's based upon the scientific method of developing a hypothesis, testing it vigorously, and then you know being able to um, understand, explain, and present those, those facts.
2: Uh, yeah.
1: I think that that is a, um, a part that we need to, I think, as I mentioned earlier, with you know having access to the world's information, sometimes that information tends to be a bit dodgy. And yet, what's interesting is sometimes that that dodgy information comes up first. And so, kids, <laughs> mm-hmm. kids certainly in the early years, they just grab the first one that comes up. And oh, go, that's oh, that's fascinating! That yeah, let's, yeah. Let's have a look down. Let's scroll down the page a bit more. Uh, let's
0: investigate a little bit further. No, that's fascinating because, yes, I see YouTube videos, for example, that I'm sure kids watch. I know that YouTube apparently, at least in the U.S., is like the number one entertainment source for young children. And they might see these YouTube videos just saying blatantly wrong things about scientific phenomenon. And I don't know if they trust you as the teacher more than the Internet as a whole. Like the first thing that comes to my head is um, a series of baking videos, for example. They're just Mm -hmm. these viral videos about... I don't know how to do a chemical reaction to make some kind of food. And it's just totally made up or it's totally wrong. And I don't know if kids believe this. So it it just makes me think like in the future with, we're going to have technology to lie better, you know? So I don't Mm. know how you combat that. How Mm. how do you teach your kids to have that scientific method or critical thinking skills or the being able to do their own design process to like Mm. overcome all the lies that may be out there?
1: I think that just you really do try to. Well, I try to get the kids to question, question mm. it, and, and and if it doesn't seem right, then then it might not be right. Now there might be aspects of it that are correct,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but mm-hmm. the whole thing together actually doesn't work. I guess because I've always worked with uh, journey planning, I always say to the, to the kids, trust your guts trust your guts. Your guts don't tend to lie. And and if something is too good, <laughs> uh, and and to be honest, we use uh, YouTube over here a, a lot. I'll, I'll use it as a, a demonstration for something, but I will check it out. <laughs> I won't just take the first one that pops up. Sure. Uh, so I do my research and, and that's really, I think, important for the for students to learn, just do the research. It's like anything; you don't just walk into a library and grab the first book off the shelf and say, "This is it. This is the meaning of the world."
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: actually have to do some research, they have to start to categorise and understand what they want. Quite often, it's really defining the question that they they want to ask.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Um, well, you know, it's you've got to ask the right question sometimes to get the right answer, and. In engineering, for example, you, you design something that is very specific. Mm, okay. It might be quite a complex engineering process, but the outcome might be very, very simple. But you've got to ask the right question. I know it was one of your um, podcasts on uh, validation and verification.
0: Yeah, ver- yep, verification Ooh. and validation. You might yeah. verify that you meet your design specs, but you your design specs don't meet any of what your customer really wants, for example.
1: Yes. And so that's asking that right question of, okay, the customer says they want, you know, something to go from point A to point B, but in actual fact, what they're looking for is X, Y, Z. And that's, I think, up to the educated, um, you know, all the educators, engineers, to actually sometimes guide people's sort of creative thinking into a more of a, a logical, critical thinking process. And that's what I got out of uh, those podcasts because we all want something. But, you know, is it actually what is going to meet your needs? It's a bit like the old, you know, doing the old needs assessment uh, or needs analysis sure. um, that used to be sort of the big term when I was doing my Bachelor of Management many years ago. You know, what is it you really want? You yeah. think you want this, but in actual fact what you want is that. And it's asking those questions to get uh, – get the right information.
0: They still teach that in mechanical engineering graduate school, I can tell you that. Because <laughs> oh, doing, okay, doing a customer needs analysis is mm. one of the first things you gotta do to to not waste your time as an engineer. So I think that's a common thing in, in all these different fields.
1: Yes, yes. People with big ideas, which is wonderful and, and you know, we need those big ideas, that's that creativity. But engineers, they've got to make it all work. You yeah. can think you want, you know, this wonderful monorail, but how's that all going to hold up and how's it going to work under certain stresses and strains and certain environmental conditions and and loads put on it? Um, you know, like we recently here in Adelaide, we bought some, some trams, wonderful trams, from Germany. Um, but they didn't have air conditioning in them and the windows didn't open. And in over 30-degree heat, <laughs> we were getting cooked.
2: Mm. <laughs> Wow.
1: As uh, as patrons, and so we um, they had to quickly go back and redesign and put some air conditioning inside them. So whoever did the need analysis on the trams here in Adelaide didn't take into account the uh, the environmental conditions <laughs> that were different between yeah. Adelaide and uh, Germany. You know, yeah. and it, it seems so simple at that, and you know we, we we can sort of snigger at that now, but someone just didn't ask that question. You know, yeah. Yeah. you know is. Is, is this tram good for going through snow or in thirty-eight degree heat?
0: <laughs> I'm going back. To, I keep going back to the fact that, mm-hmm. like, you've been a teacher for, in my view, a pretty good long mm-hmm. time. But you had all this other experience. Do you have advice mm-hmm. for people who are new to the education world?
1: Um, I guess it depends on where they where they are in their life. But I think always just be open minded. Um, be embrace change change is I think the only constant be confident in your own core skills accept that you will have strengths in some areas and limitations in others be prepared to um, rely on your strengths uh, but also be open to develop new skills uh, and new opportunities uh, I think at the end of the day we cannot stand still and I think That for some people who may have been in education all of their life, they get very used to that one culture of education. I guess because I've worked in a whole myriad of different work environments, I guess I can see the best bits out of a lot of different industries. But just be open-minded. Just be open to change. Just be open for things that are new and different and, and... I guess be curious about things and, you know, like uh, we're, we're looking at 3, 3D printing. Um, I can see the potential for 3D printing and I just think, oh, I've got all these wonderful ideas. Then I've got to take those wonderful ideas and I've got to, if you like, do a needs analysis on them and go, well, what does the Australian curriculum say that my students need to learn? Because there's no, yeah. no good me going, oh, let's design a beautiful castle, 3D printing. But there's very little learning for the students. Yeah. You know, so I need to then take my wonderful enthusiasm and big ideas and then go, how is this going to help my students learn and fit it into the Australian curriculum uh, along with the critical creative thinking continuum that we have over here. And just be open, I think, is I guess the one thing I would offer. And uh, I think that also... Listen to others. I think listen to others. You might not always act upon the information that you, you hear, but listen to others, and uh, I love that. I, I think that's one of the things that I love. I love the diversity of education and the people that are in the educational system over here, uh, and I love to hear about people who have been in education for you know 30 years, and you go, wow, 30 years doing the same job. But, of course, as we know in education, it's not the same job because you get a different cohort of students, sometimes weekly.
2: Um, yeah, yeah.
1: At least every year. And so it's those sorts of things. But I also think have a passion for what you do. If if, if you lose that passion, then look for another way to challenge yourself. That would be it. That's good
0: advice. <laughs> Thank that's <you>. That's excellent <laughs> advice, Chris. <laughs> Okay. Well, speaking of listening to others, I'm glad that uh, I can hear some of what you're saying. I really appreciate that. I feel like we've been talking for a little while, which ooh, is good ooh. for me. But I don't want to take up all of our time as well. Mm. Hey, um, <laughs> well,
1: see, it's morning over here, so now it's nine a.m. for me. But oh it's, no, what, I, 530 it's it's five thirty today?
0: here. Yeah, in fact, I got a phone call in another oh, half an okay. hour. It's yeah, like yeah, well, yeah. you've
1: already done a day's
0: work, Pius. <laughs> exactly. You're just getting started. <laughs>
1: That's right. And, uh, and I've actually got a day off today. Oh, you you have a day off? <laughs> mm, I no? only work four days a week.
0: Oh, well, wow. <laughs> that, I'm jealous of that as well. <laughs> is that common? Is that a regular thing?
1: Uh, yes. Yes, over here, over here in, in teaching, uh, we have quite a high percentage of uh, part-time workers. Okay. Uh, and so usually it's anywhere from about three to four days is probably, I guess, the average of part-time.
2: Oh, but wow. But
1: we've got teachers. You can do a minimum of two days within South Australian education system. You have to do a minimum of two days. But yeah, uh, so I'm very lucky, yes.
0: Mm. No, that's great. And it's a true day off. It's not like you're preparing lessons or something.
1: Uh, No, I will do some work a little bit later. I see. um, Because this term we're doing origami and we're making these complex 3D shapes. And so I try to get my my skill level ready to go for that. But I'll do a little bit of that later on. But no, no, it's purely a day off. Um, Quite often I'll spend it with my granddaughter uh, which is really lovely. That's that's mainly why I took the day off to spend time with my granddaughter.
0: Well, you go enjoy the rest of your day off. Thanks, I really bye. appreciate you taking some time, Chris. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I hope we can talk again.
1: Yeah, look, that'd be lovely, bud.
0: That was my guest, Chris Perkins, teacher at Keithcott Farm Primary School in South Australia. Chris sent me a video of his student's Lego robot arm picking up a ball. Check it out in the show notes or find it on the podcast website at k12engineering.net. That's k12engineering.net. There you can also find links to many other things that we mentioned today. Thanks again to Chris for speaking. And thank you also to my supporters and awesome monthly donors on Patreon. Your donations are a big message that you like what I do here. And if you like it too, and you want to say so with a dollar a month, you can donate by pledging at patreon.com slash Pios Labs. That's Pios with an O. And you can also support me by checking out my book, Engineer's Guide to Improv and Art Games. All this information is also at the website k12engineering.net. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast is an independent production of Pios Labs in Austin, Texas. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays, everyone, if you're listening around this time of December 2019. I just wanted to remind you that our live podcast session at South by Southwest EDU is slated for March, 2020. You should join us. You can register for South by Southwest at their website, SXSW.com. We have some panelists lined up to talk about how to develop a career in educational technology. Rachel is moderating and it should be fun. If you're coming this year, please say, Hey, also, This is the last episode of the 2019 season. It's been a busy year for me and I'm still teaching. 2019 is pretty crazy. It's season four of this show. I'm really grateful I've been able to do this podcast for four years. I can thank so many people who helped me do this. First of all, my partner, Jay, thank you. I love you. I literally could not do this without you. Thanks of course also to my co-host and sometimes improv partner, Rachel, who's totally been a guide in my educational growth over the years, giving me her teacher tips when I was an unknowing engineer. Thank you to Southern, my other sometimes co-host, fellow mechanical engineer, lover of the film Interstellar, and currently getting some personal growth back home in India. And thank you of course to everyone who shared their thoughts and stories on this podcast. Uh, Or to me in a good old-fashioned regular talk that's not being recorded. And thank you whether we were talking in a quiet lab in Chicago or a really loud classroom in Texas. In all those cases, I am pretty sure I learned something and you are the reason I've been doing this podcast. I keep on learning so much from each of you. I wish I could keep on doing it forever. I'd like to think that you're making me a better teacher, a better engineer, and maybe a better person. So here's to whatever comes next in 2020. Cheers, everybody.